Welcome to another episode of the Faith Work Rest podcast. Our mission is to help people discern their vocations and reimagine their occupation for the good of their neighbor and the glory of God. We're part of the Surge Network. It's a network of local churches united to put Jesus on display in their community. You can learn more at surgenetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Faith, Work, and Rest podcast. I'm Lauren Kutzko, and I'm here with Kimberly Deckel and Jim Mullins. And today we've got a great episode for you where uh, Jim was recently speaking and traveling through Vancouver uh, and got to meet with Dr. Stephen Garber, who's a professor of marketplace theology and leadership at Regent College. He's the director of Regent's new graduate program, the Master of Arts in Leadership, Theology, and Society. He comes to Regent College most recently from his role as principal of the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation, and Culture in Washington, D.C. He's the godfather of the modern faith and work movement in the U.S., and he's a living, breathing book of Proverbs. I got to interject. This is hilarious. <laughs> I wrote his bio down and I told you to read it, but then I wrote a few notes <laughs> yeah. of what I was going to say about oh. Steve Garber. It just those words coming out of your mouth was kind of hilarious. So, so <laughs> Lord, so, for, <laughs> so first of all, Steve Garber doesn't call himself the, <laughs> the godfather of the faith and work movement. Like, I, I got to rewrite no. my bio. I'm like, <laughs> So what am I, I the godfather of? No, you can be the godfather of a lot of things, man. <laughs> but but I kind of think of him as the godfather of the faith and work movement in the U.S. because he's just influenced so many people. And he has a a way of speaking that has the gravitas of like a mob boss. Like, <laughs> I hope he doesn't hear me say that. But, but his words have weight. And I kind of think he's like a living, breathing book of Proverbs and that he's just a source of wisdom and his words are not wasted. So anyway, Steve did not put that stuff in his bio. <laughs> so awesome. People always tell me they can tell when I'm reading. Yeah. Like, anyway. All right. Ahead. Well, I'm going to start just slipping things into the bio. Just he'll to, just say it. Yep. <laughs> he's not thinking about what he's saying at all. <laughs> I heard a little hesitation a couple of times. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh! So you want to roll in your? Uh, so one of the things we wanted to talk about today, yeah, uh, is just this thing that comes up in your conversation with Steve last week. So you guys, how has your past encounter with the brokenness of the world shaped your sense of calling today? Yeah, I think the importance of this question comes out of the interview because in the interview, I ask, I basically take five sentences, five statements from his book, Visions of Vocation. And ask him to expound upon them. Mm -hmm. And one of the big themes is how our encounter with the brokenness of the world often shapes our sense of vocation and calling. So mm -hmm. maybe, Kimberly, you want to start us off with that question? What yeah, do you think? Yeah, sure. So I think for me, when I think of like my present calling, probably like a lot of people, it's there have been a few like stepping stones to get here. And so when I think back to kind of what shaped initially a lot of the work that I was doing in social work, mm -hmm. like so much of that definitely came from experiences that I had in childhood, like whether they were kind of in my immediate family or experiences that I had um, as a child, as a black girl. And so much of that shaped me like kind of moving into a career in social work and really um, like having a longing to encounter brokenness and to encounter people who'd experienced brokenness and to share some of like what I had learned and experienced and helping them in their journeys. And then I think that then that kind of ultimately led me into a lot of what I'm doing today in terms of pastoring people and just shepherding our congregation. So much of what I've learned from people, so much of what I've learned has been from people who've experienced brokenness and then from my own just brokenness and, and struggles. So mm, yeah. 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 I would say for me, I think as a as a youth, as a child, 
um, I've had seasons of fatherlessness Mm -hmm. where I was craving having someone speak into my life and say, this is who you are. And this is what I see in you, where your strengths are. And went whole seasons, years without having that. But then there would be these people who would step in, Mm. who were like mentors, these um, men who are kind of like father figures throughout the course of my life. Um, There was, it's it's kind of funny, so many of them were derivatives of the name Richard. So there was Richard Williams, who the best way I could describe him is he was like Major Payne from (laughs) that that old movie, The Drill Sergeant. Mm -hmm. Um, He was my best friend's dad, and he had a huge role in shaping my life and just recently reconnected with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Richard Godhart, the pastor that I was in intern under. There was uh, Rick Love, who I co-founded Peace Catalyst International with. And then there were a bunch of other people, Mark Rentz, Steve Stoltenberg, Michael Parker. I feel like this is like an award acceptance speech right here <laughs> of the people that I'm thanking. But I, w- I feel like there were these seasons that were kind of barren of having mm-hmm. someone speak into my life. Um, and then when it came, it was so profound and formative. And I think it has, that's part of why I like to help people, uh, discern their vocations mm-hmm. and, and try to speak into their life to see who they are mm-hmm. and then to put those things into words. Mm-hmm. How about you, Lauren? I've heard this concept. You know, we talk about this as we're kind of processing and helping people discern their vocations and looking at kind of your own life and, and the brokenness. And as I've thought about that, you know, I can definitely pull out my parents' divorce or different things that have happened. Um, but generally speaking, you know, my life has been relatively trauma-less, um, fortunately. So mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, I think that's, when I think about my my vocation, um, I do a lot of work helping organizations with culture and helping people start businesses and helping people figure out their career. I think a lot of that has come out of my own uh, mm-hmm. career angst, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to call that brokenness in, in the way that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think sometimes we think of brokenness can be pretty, uh, pretty painful. Yeah, but brokenness is a is a spectrum. I yeah. mean, uh you can have a you can have a broken pinky or a broken skull. And one of those is a bigger <laughs> deal. It, they're both broken. It feels more acute, but they're both broken and they yeah. both what need to be addressed. What are you trying to, to say about a pinky? Yeah, I'm just Yeah, exactly. You uh, try to play basketball without a pinky. No, exactly. But the the person who denigrates the actual brokenness of a pinky. Yeah. Uh means that a pinky ends up not getting addressed in healing correctly and ends up looking like this, yeah. where it doesn't I'm, fully Jim's straighten showing out. showing us his pinky. I'm showing the, my broken, <laughs> messed up pinky I right now. I broke my pinky about a year ago, and they were like, you have to do physical therapy. Really? Yeah, wow. so that it didn't end up like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I am the evidence. Check out the show notes for a picture of Jim's pinky. That's right. The living embodiment of what it looks like. straight-ish. <laughs> yeah. So Kimberly now just attempted to show us her pinky and then end, ended up Almost like... Almost broke it again. Breaking it again. So before we cause any more injury or put words in Steve Garber's mouth that he didn't intend to say, let's go ahead and go to the interview with Steve Garber and listen to him uh, expound upon these five important senses from the visions of vocation. Well, I'm here with Stephen Garber. Uh, someone I admire deeply, someone for whom when I first started this podcast, uh, I wrote down a list of the people that we should have as guests. Number one on that list was you, Steve. So it's good to have you on the podcast, and I appreciate you taking the time. You're very welcome, Jim. And uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to just give some introductory questions so you get to know Steve, 
And uh, ultimately, the aim of this podcast is we're going to just discuss five or six sentences that come from his book, Visions of Vocation, that have been profoundly impactful on my life. And how often do we want to be able to sit with the folks who've written the books that have shaped us and ask them questions about those sentences? So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, But first of all, would you give us a little bio of yourself? What's the short bio of Steve Garber? I was born in uh, a beautifully named town in the mountains of Colorado, Monta Vista. Mm. I've always loved writing down birthplace, Monta Vista, Colorado. Mm. Um, And it's at the headwaters of the Rio Grande River, uh, which makes its way down from Colorado to New Mexico, down along to Texas and Mexico. And so to be born there, I've always enjoyed that about my my origins. Um, I grew up in California, another mountain, another valley uh, called the San Joaquin Valley. Mm. Um, I'm one of four boys. My mom and dad loved me and loved God and wanted me to learn to love the world. And and, uh, along the way, in the mountains of Colorado, again, I met my wife when I was a 17-year-old. And uh, we lived for 30 years in Washington, D.C. and moved here to Vancouver about a year and a half ago. Mm, That's great. Um, Well, tell us a little bit about what you're doing here in Vancouver. Well, one of the things I'm doing, I probably should say this too, just to keep my life honest with you, mm-hmm. but not only did I, get, did I get married, but we had five children along mm-hmm. the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so part of what we're doing living in Vancouver is living between people and places. Yeah. So there's a strange, strangeness in this last year and a half of feeling more keenly than now, but not yet, of you know, eschatological life, as we might call it, um, mm. of realizing that we live between people and places in a way that we had not before. And so part of the dynamic of life every day is that we're here and we're committed to being here. We drive home to home and mm. walk into our door and it's a home to us. But there's also another home for us, which is in Virginia. And we have children who live there and some other places now, too. And so part of that is my life right now. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, the invitation to come to Vancouver was a long in coming. Um, I have for you know, most of my, really, my adult life known about Regent College. Uh, the first book I ever gave it to my wife, Meg, before we were married. Actually, Jim, I gave it to her in Phoenix, Arizona mm. in 1973. Mm. She was in graduate school in your own hometown university, Arizona State. What book uh, was it? Knowing God mm. um, by J.I. Packer, of course, who was a long name here at Regent. And, and, uh, but I began following Regent in the 1970s, and I've watched over its, its history. And, and, uh, and then some years ago, I was invited by the president to give it to a summer school course here. And seemed innocent at the time. Actually, it was about come teach a course on the Visions of Vocation book. Yeah. And so I did that. And, and then at the end of the week, he said, would you ever do more things for Regent College? And that slowly, slowly over time began to be, would you ever be willing to teach here? And <clears throat> I said, no, probably not. I, I planted four trees in my yard this year. <laughs> I'm planning to move anywhere. And, uh, but I came back and talked to the folks here for a long day about a month later. And mm. About seven months later, we decided slowly, slowly, as the decision came, to take up an adventure, as we named it ourselves, between Meg and I, an adventure to step into the life here. So Yeah. So you came here to launch a new program, yeah, a new I, master's uh, degree. So, uh, what yeah. does that look like? So there were two hats, as you, uh, you know, understand. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, one was the hat of becoming the, being the director of a new master's degree in leadership, theology, and society. Hmm. There's a sense in which my whole life has really been lived between those three words and worlds. Mm. Um, For 15 years, I taught on Capitol Hill in a program for undergraduates, which was nestled between those same ideas. But for 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds, 
15 years, I taught graduate students in Washington, D.C. in a similar uh, idea, but differently born and different wineskin, I suppose. Mm. <clears throat> so for most of my life, I've been thinking about these questions that are embodied in the words leadership, theology, society. This is a different wineskin here at Regent College um, to think about that. And, and uh, so that's one hat I wear. Uh, yeah. The other is to be professor of uh, the theology of the marketplace, which is essentially in the elevators I get into, what do you do? And I will say, I teach about the work we do and why it matters, hmm. you know, who we are and why who we are matters to the world. Hmm. So, That's really rich. Um, who, who are the type of people who'd be interested in that program? Yeah. Well, um, again, I don't always think about elevator speeches, but yeah. it seems good right now. Um, I've given one many times in the last year and a half since uh -huh. coming here. I'm going to ask you uh, a lot of strange questions that no, you probably okay. don't want to answer. No, this is a good yeah. question, Jim. It's a very yeah. good question, actually, because I've thought about this a lot and said mm -hmm. these words a lot in the last while. But many people do master's degrees at age 25 or so. They think, I need a master's to do what I want to do with my life. Mm -hmm. This isn't that program. Right. Um, it's a different kind of a program. It's a different, a different idea and vision, actually. It's for people who are more 35, 45, 55-year-olds who actually have a life already. Mm. So they're not looking to prepare for a life. They have a life. But they want different, maybe better, truer reasons for life. Yeah. Now that they're in it, they realize to keep it going, to keep on keeping on, they're going to need to have, be more deeply rooted. And so they're theologically eager people, every one of them, seriously interested people in a deepened idea of, you know, uh, what I believe and why I believe what I believe. Yeah. But the people who are in the marketplaces of the world, all over the world, literally. Mm. So they're from, you know, Timbuktu, you know, metaphorically, but they're also from, you know, Lagos, Nigeria, and from Auckland, New Zealand, and from Singapore, you know, and from uh, Calgary, and from Dallas, and Charlottesville. Uh, mm. They're all, all over the place, actually, but they're people who, were, uh, who, who have a life, but they in some ways have identified, I want a deeper, truer life. And so they're drawn to the program, which has vocation at its very heart, a deepened, clarified sense of vocation at its heart, but contextualized by these three ideas, these three words, leadership, theology, society. That's great. Well, um, I want to get into a conversation about the book, but before we do, I want to ask you some of my crazy, strange, rapid-fire questions. Okay, Jim. And I know that you are not a man of superlatives, uh, <laughs> that, that you buck against that. That's exactly right, Jim. You do know me. Yeah, yeah. So. But uh, I am I, a man I, of superlatives, I, uh, <laughs> so I'm going to ask those the questions. The best basketball I, I ever saw in the whole world was in Turkey one day. You know, I might hear you say <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's, uh, that is absolutely true. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some at you, just okay. so people can get to know you. I might you. throw them back at you, But too. We'll, we'll put an asterisk. Okay. That, uh, this is qualified. Just, yeah, qualified. So um, most influential book outside of the Bible. Yeah, boy. It's hard to do this, but maybe I'll just give one in honor of the place I'm sitting in today. Sure. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Um, yeah. I've memorized pages of that, paragraphs of that, sentences of that. In some ways, the epistemological journey I've been on professionally or vocationally to think through what we know and why what we know matters to us, mm. I could say that in some ways it got started with those, that distinction Packer makes in the first pages of his book, that it's one thing to know about God, it's something else to know God. Yeah. Uh, so all the thinking I've done in the last 40-plus years or so about mm, epistemology and meaning of vocation and life in the world, you know, Polanyi and covenantal epistemology and all these things, in some ways I could say it grew out of you know, that simple argument. It's one thing to say, to say, yes, I know about God, 
something different to say, but do you know God? Yeah, that's great. Great book. What, what has been the most influential relationship out of outside of your family? Outside of my family? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would I could say probably a lot here, but I will you know, reflect more the last 25 years of sure. my life. Um, Meg and I have always made the choice since we first got married, literally, to choose a neighbor before you choose a house. Mm. I would never, ever say it's the 11th commandment of God. Mm-hmm. It is not that. Maybe like but, the 13th or something. <laughs> but it seems to me that at least there's a certain, you know, wisdom about it that mm. in, in terms of keeping your own heart alive over time. Because it's hard to keep your heart alive in this, you know, world. And you live in a, Fe- a Phoenix or Washington, D.C. or Vancouver or a Sao Paulo or you can pick your place in the world. But, you know, apart from living in a really small place on the face of the earth, but you begin to move into a bigger place, it's harder to keep your heart because you're hard because you're you're not seeing people who are with you and who believe what you believe and walk with you in the world, you know, week by week, maybe day by day. Yeah, yeah. So we've always made the choice, you know, as hopeful and frail as it was, to choose a neighbor before you choose a house. So we lived in one house in Virginia, which we still own actually at this point, hmm. for twenty five years. And we began to have and we moved there for particular reasons, but now we began people moving in to be near to us. And uh um so people, families, and people, and we met, you know, week by week, and talked and talked and thought and thought, and I served on boards of their organizations and part of their hopes and dreams, and you know, and there's hardly a day that goes by that I'm not in communication with them still, wow. even though I don't live there anymore. Wow. Um, and because uh, if there's, you know, vocation's a big word and a complex word, but you know, there's a, a sense of of shared, common calling to care about the world in certain ways, mm. even though our occupations are very different from each other. Mm-hmm. So but we have shared holidays, we've shared griefs and sorrows and laughter and, and gladness and, and, uh, and a long life. Yeah. So this is perhaps a related question, but um, knowing that it's not just the people who form us, but the places that shape mm-hmm. us as well, yeah. what has been the most influential place, whether that's a building, mm-hmm. a city, a neighborhood, yeah. What comes to I'll give, I have to give you two, Jim. Sorry. Sure, that's okay. Uh, that's okay. So, so, two superlatives. <laughs> um, but I would say that being born in the mountains of Colorado has been deeply formative for me. Yeah. And I don't think about my life outside of that, frankly. Hmm. You know. So, you know, I often wonder going back to this valley of Colorado in Colorado, the San Luis Valley, which is on the one hand rich by, you know, a hundred miles of fourteen thousand foot peaks, the Sangre de Cristos as they were called by the Spanish explorers. Look, the blood of Christ, mm. you know, and the sunset, you know, red on the, the peaks of the mountains. Mm. Um, but at the base, it gives this strange, you know, phenomena sort of of God's sort of surprising wonders in the world called the Great Sand Dunes National Park. Mm. So just mountains of sand at the base of these huge, huge peaks of mountains. Then mm. um, a very, very fertile agricultural valley. Um, so in some ways, you know, the sort of the rootedness in the ordinary, you know, things of life, of farmers farming, ranchers ranching, you know, uh, but then next to majesty and glory and wonder, those are pretty deep to me in my life, mm. I would say. Um, in a strange way, I spent 30 years of life in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. which has been quite formative for me. And, yeah. You know, I mean, I, in some ways, flying back in because I flew in and out of the city a lot over the years of living there. Mm. I would always think, do I live here in Washington, D.C.? How'd that happen in my life? Mm. Um, I know that in one sense I went there with a sense of, like most people do in some ways, or maybe many people do at least, with a sense of historical weight and and uh, 
historical responsibility. Like maybe I can put my shoulder to the wheel of history and affect mm. how the world turns out. Maybe that's what takes me takes me to Washington D.C. People come that for that reason for all kinds of mixed motive, motives, of course, year after year, really. But I would say that the idea of being part of debates, discussions of of, uh, of uh, years of conversation with people who, in different ways, share that own their own sense of you know, historical weight about the lives they have, you know, and realizing for for blessing and curse, for glory and shame, you know, in the early days of the 21st century, Washington D.C. still has a place of responsibility mm. in an unusual way in the world. Yeah, so. that's good. So what about the soundtrack of your life? If you have some music playing in the background of the life of Steve Garber, what would it be? <laughs> oh, Jim. You know, it's like picking up, asking which finger do you want to you know, keep in your hand. Um, but if you had to choose. I'll just choose one because choose one it's recent in my memory given your earlier question to me. But Great. There's a, a, a wonderfully gifted mandolin player mm -hmm. from Minnesota, as they say there. In Peter Ostrushko. Mm. Uh, I first heard his music on Prairie Home Companion. Mm. Uh, and I thought, well, who are you and what do you do, really? And I heard him in the Kennedy Center one time in Washington, D.C., and I talked to him a little bit. And um, he has a beautiful song, all mandolin, uh, called Twilight on the Sangre de Cristos. Mm. And uh, it's lovely, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's just a lovely song and thoughtful and meditative and, you know, beautiful and. And, and of course, given that's my birthplace, um, it, it goes deep in my soul. That's great. See, it's possible. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, uh, I want to have a bit of a conversation about your book. Mm -hmm. um, this book is something that has not just shaped me profoundly, but also our community in Phoenix. And your, it's probably the most re referenced or quoted uh, book on the podcast, not just by the people in Arizona who are doing the interviews, but by the people who are we're interviewing will often mm -hmm. reference it. So I thought what I would do is I went and I flipped through my book and I picked out uh, some of the sentences that I underlined and that I've reflected on over the past mm -hmm. several years and thought I would read those and uh, ask you some questions about them. So uh, we'll go ahead and start with this. Um, the sentence is that there's nothing we are asked to do that requires more of us than to know and to love at the same time. Yeah. Knowing and loving at the same time. What does that mean? Why is it so difficult to know and love at the same time? What What's meant by yeah. that sentence there? Well, just think about, you know, you know bring it down from 36,000 feet to, mm -hmm. you know, to life every day. Mm -hmm. People that you live with. You know, people who ask, what do you mean by that question? And mm -hmm. I would say, just ask yourself the question, can your wife know you and still love you? Mm. People say, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Because they know their frailty. Yeah. We know our way we fall short of expectations and hopes. And we know that in certain ways there's, you know, maybe undying affection, which is a ground of love. But we also know the fragility because we know that we mess up so much, really. We, we wanted to be a certain kind of a husband or a man or a friend or whatever it's going to be. And we realize, I wasn't quite that way, was I? I'm not, I'm not usually that way, am I? You know? And that somebody would actually know you well mm. and still love you. Pretty amazing, actually. Um, uh, for me, it's born out of actually the, the primordial question in human history, mm. uh, which comes out of Genesis chapters 2 and 3. 
um, the strangely named tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm. Um, you know, for most of my life, I was perplexed by the question, by the naming of the tree, thinking, "I believe you, O Lord, and I trust the scriptures to be true." And but why that name for that tree? Sure, I mean, like, like you could have given it a name that we could all understand, couldn't you? Right. Like, I mean, why does it matter so much that you named it to that at the very beginning of time? Mm. I think when I began to, you know, work at it you know, for over some years, I began to think, now I get it. I think I begin to understand it now because what I've renamed it is, it is an, an epistemological temptation with a moral heart. Hmm. Uh, what do you mean are, by that? Well, um, of course, there's a couple of words which may not want to be ones we use all the time, but hmm. epistemology has to do with what we know, mm -hmm. how we know what we know. Mm -hmm. You think, so why would that be such a big deal at the, beginning, at the very beginning of time, mm. at the heart of faithfulness to God and living in God's world, to know what you know, and, the, and but there to be a moral meaning to it? Mm. Um, well, wouldn't be to move it a little further down, the, down to the sidewalk here. Um, the question is, what are you going to do with what you know? Mm. Yeah. What do you do with what you know? What will you do with what you know? And you can see that there's both the epistemological dimension there, but there's also the moral dimension. Mm. What will you do with what you know? And realizing that over time, that is the question of life every day for every one of us. Mm. Uh, and you know, just to simply try to answer your question here, you know, in a straightforward way. Um, uh, of course, in a fallen, broken, wounded world, we very quickly understand that it's a mess. Mm -hmm. You know, it isn't what it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, you know, across the whole of life, you know, you know, one of our best poets, Dylan once, you know, plaintively just put it this way: everything is broken, mm. you know, and uh, across the board, you know, across the board of, of your heart and mine. Um, and so, when you begin to have the eyes of your heart open to the wounds of the world, you know, the wounds of your own heart, even, you realize that, you know, it's harder then to really know something, to really know a person. And still love them, mm. well, that is harder actually. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, and I, you know, I, part of the book is makes the argument that you know the human responses have mostly been some version of what we have, you know, called cynicism and stoicism. Mm. Um, what's interesting is they were both named that thousands of years ago, before House of Cards ever imagined coming into being. Mm. You know, cynicism was actually a formal name. As you know, we will call ourselves the cynics. Mm. You know. We will call ourselves the Stoics. Mm. You know, and why? Well, they're twin sisters of the same you know, response to that primordial temptation. Mm. Um, and they both say, I don't want to take it in. And I know it, but I don't want to have to respond to it. Yeah. And so there's a repression of what you know, because it, it hurts too much to have to be responsible for what you know. Yeah, yeah. So what does that look like in people's daily lives? Yeah. Well, I mean, you could, you could say, I mean, I mean, people, of course... You know, whether they've ever read a Stoic or not, or a Cynic yeah. philosopher or not, that isn't the point here so much. Yeah. It's just as human beings, as you know, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, we will be people who say, you know, you know as Romans one reminds us, you know, it's plainly the world as it really is is plainly revealed. It isn't hidden away. Mm. You know, it isn't if somehow there's a, a cloud over the reality of life. In fact, you know, Paul's argument is that we're, we're without excuse. It's so plainly revealed to us the way the world really is mm. that we, we're without excuse. There's no excuses for it. But of course, in our own twisted hearts, our own sad hearts, mm. you know, we will we will repress or suppress mm -hmm. what we know to be true because mm. we don't want to have to respond to it rightly. Yeah. Uh, and 
So for me, as you asked, you know, a few minutes ago, I mean, to know and to love, why that's so hard? Well, it's one thing to, to go back to Packer's, you know, good gift to me years ago, mm -hmm. to know about the world. Mm -hmm. But to know the world, to actually to, then to step, to, to, to love what you know. Yeah. Because in the Hebrew epistemology, to know means you have to care. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't care, then in the Hebrew world, world and worldview, you actually couldn't say, I know. Yeah. Because to say, I know, means that I actually care. Yeah. So it makes you know, beautiful, poignant, tender sense of that sort of strange language to us in early Genesis, and Adam knew Eve, his wife. Yeah. You think it means that? Yeah. Well, it does, you know. It means something sort of profound and mysterious and complex and, and so tender you can hardly talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it strikes me. I, I work with a lot of college students near ASU, and there can be a lot of optimism mm -hmm. about their ability to change the world. Yeah. And I, I've seen it time and time again is when you bump up against the pains and complexities that the world is a brutal place where sin has affected everything. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes as a punch in the gut. Yes. And uh, I think that's really at the point where you it's crucial to ask the question, now that I actually know what the world is like, will I continue to stay engaged? Yeah, yeah. So building on what you were saying, uh, there's another sentence that stands out. And um, it's in the strange calculus of history and the human heart, the subtle temptation of cynicism confounds our best efforts at working toward the common good. And that's very related to what you were just talking about. But can you talk more about how cynicism uh, subverts and undercuts our attempts to work for the common good? Yeah. Well, what you just said, Jim, about the ASU students, of course, it is true in Tempe, Arizona. Mm -hmm. But it's also true in Vancouver, British Columbia, UBC students. And it's true in Washington, D.C. of people coming to step into the city and its hopes and its history and to say, you know, I'm smart. I'm eager. I'll, I'll work at it. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm ambitious. You know, I won't give up easily. You know, maybe they've proven themselves someplace else, whether it's in Tokyo or, you know, in Seattle or, you know, they've they've had a life before they come and they've sort of been seen as a particularly gifted, ambitious, able person. And then they cross the Potomac, so to speak, you know, mm. enter into the, you know, the complexity of the city of Washington. And then it may take six months, it might take three years, but people almost always realize, come to the realization, this is more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I didn't think it would be like this actually. Yeah. You know? And, you know, some decide to go back to, excuse me, to, to Des Moines. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't mean to, dis on Des Moines, but, you know, just to pick it out of a place in the world. Yeah. Um, say, well, I tried Washington. You know, you can't do it there. Mm. Um, now, of course, I've been there for a long time, and Washington, D.C. in the year 2019 has its own sort of strange, you know, moment, you know, and people are newly despairing, mm. you know, of what's going on and what it means and the fragmentation of American vision and hope and mm -hmm. the sense of belonging to each other and for each other in society. Mm. Uh, and... Uh, but I think, you know, that if I would say in some ways, Jim, my friend, um, that I have for years described my own sense of calling to Washington um, as to push back against the cynicism of the city. Mm. So all the things I've done, the work I've done, the places I've been, you know, to put it in a sentence, I have for years described myself as, you know, being here to push back against the cynicism of the city. Mm. Uh, because it's almost inevitable. I would say it's not inevitable because that takes away the hint of hope mm. that is there in this broken world. Mm. But it's almost inevitable that the more you know, 
know, the more depressing it becomes. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And whether you, whether your response is cynicism or stoicism, because they're both are in some ways, you know, stoicism is, is, I would say, to put it simply, it's turning the barometer of your heart down mm. and saying, I used to care about things like that. I don't anymore, though. Mm. You know, I won't get hurt again. I will not get hurt again. Right. I won't care like that anymore. In my right. Life. You know, cynicism is a different disease, <laughs> but it's related because mm. in some ways it says, um, you know, if I don't screw you, you're going to screw me. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm going to get mine. Because everybody's out to get somebody, you know, and that's just the way it works. So don't be naive. Don't be a fool. Don't be 21 anymore, mm-hmm. you know, full of ambition and hope for good work in, in the world, for that you, that you could do anything to cultivate the common good mm. with, with your life. Hmm. So what does it look like as communities, as people? What are the practices that push against stoicism and cynicism Mm -hmm. and form hearts that know and love at the same time? Yeah, that's a very, very good question, Jim. Um, It's the right question, I would say. Um, I remember some years ago in a conversation with somebody who had taken up as a major project of his life, uh, coming alongside universities and colleges all over America, uh, trying to help them have resources to honestly explore the meaning of vocation uh, for American life or life in the world, actually. Mm-hmm. And he was willing to give you know, lots of money towards that project, actually. Um, and because my work had been drawn in by these places that were you know, interested in these questions, he said, do you have any ideas about this, Steve Garber? I said, well, I have one idea, and that is that I think that Leslie Newbegin was right when he wrote in the late 1980s that congregations are the hermeneutic of the gospel. Mm. Um, I said to him, you know, when I first read those words, when a book came out, I dismissed it thinking, I love this book. It's a great book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I drew my best friends in Washington from the Senate and the Supreme Court and the think tanks and the Department of Justice in to read the book with me. We were all seriously there for the same reasons mm-hmm. and the same ideas that we were differently placed in the city. You know, I was the professor at the table, like I always have been. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're reading this book, and we come to the end of the book, and he says, to my mind, outrageously, Congregations are the, are the hermeneutic of the gospel. Mm. They're thinking this is like the mouse that roars. Mm-hmm. You know, like I won't, I won't give you, I won't, I won't, I, I don't like this actually. Mm. But some years later, when this you know person called me and said, "Do you have any ideas about this idea of vocation in the world?" Mm. I said, "Well, I think Newbegin was right, and I was wrong." Um, mm. and, uh, uh, now, there's more to be said when you say that, of course. Mm-hmm. But apart from you know embedding yourself in a community of kindred spirits, Mm -hmm. people who commit themselves to the same hopes, the same dreams, willing to form common practices, common habits of heart to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it over time. We just give up, Mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. I mean, we do, we do give up. Uh, And uh, so, um, I mean, I would say that, you know, written into that gem is, you know, that it can't be in the abstract, a community of common hearts and minds has to be committed to the, the things that matter mm-hmm. and that are true. You know? um, there has to be sort of intellectual depth and breadth. Mm-hmm. There has to be theological depth and breadth, I would say. And there has to be, you know, to narrow it a bit even more, the biblical depth and breadth. Uh, you, know, you know this because it's how you think about everything, Jim. But, I mean, apart from getting the story right mm-hmm. <laughs> about reality, mm-hmm. about history, about the meaning of life in the world, we have a hard time making making our way th- into it, through it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so 
I would sort of, if I was to tease out Newbegin, which of course he teased out himself mm-hmm. in book after book, so I'm not adding more to his work other than to say that one sentence didn't say everything, but um, but a congregation, you know, that is formed by uh, an honest, truthful uh, account of what it means to be a human being living in God's world is critical mm. to this. Um, I know that's the heart of your yeah. life and hope at, at, at the, in, the, in the redemption churches. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's move on to the next sentence. Um, This one is a rich one. It says, To learn to see oneself as implicated is the most difficult task of all, especially if it is the responsibility born of love. Duty only takes us so far. At some point, we must delight in what is ours and the relationships and responsibilities that are ours. It is duty and desire together that make a good life, not only knowing what I should do, but wanting uh, to do what I should do. So there, there's multiple layers to that. But the word that jumps out is the, the first phrase there is to learn to see oneself as implicated. Yeah. What does it mean to see oneself as implicated and how does that connect mm-hmm. to vocation? Yeah. yeah. Well, if we can imagine, you know, that the human heart has been, you know, uh, tempted by the twin sisters of cynicism and stoicism for thousands of years, hmm. literally before Jesus ever came on the face of the earth, people called themselves cynics and stoics mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's not a 21st century information age problem mm-hmm. by itself. But in our own moment in history where we do live in the info glut culture of the 21st century, mm-hmm. where we just know so much about everything all the time, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's hard to take it in and then know what you're supposed to do about it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, people who know me pretty well and been been friend conversation partners for years would know that years ago I was intrigued by this song by you too. Uh-huh. You know, and believing this, I've always believed that the artists get there first. Uh-huh. Their antennae are kind of out there, listening, feeling first. What's happening? You know, eventually in the world that all of us live in. Um, when they did this song years ago called "Numb." It's very intriguing to me, you know, and I began to listen to it and then listen to it again and then began to hear it again and began to play it wherever I went, actually. Because mm. it intrigued me that you know, they had their artistic, aesthetic fingers out touching something that was we were not even writing about yet in terms of the big books of the world, mm. you know, the major or articles, the major magazines. But you begin to watch 10, 20 years later, everybody was beginning to write about this. Mm. The artists got there first, you know. And you could listen to, you know, 20 years later, you know, Nicholas Carr's The Shallows. You, know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you could, you know, listen to Sherry Turkle's, you know, Alone Together. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and they are, these are good books that I use in my classrooms. So, I mean, they're good contributions to this. But there was an interesting, you know, important way that we might have had ears to hear her U2 20 years ago, you know, saying, everything is numb. You know, mm-hmm. everything is numb. Um, you know, I'm numb. I'm numb. I'm numb. What's the numbness about? Well, the song, you know, beautifully, you know, musically, artfully, is about keeping the, your eyes plugged in to the information age. Mm-hmm. And it numbs you. Because mm-hmm. you don't know what to do with everything that you know you mm-hmm. now know. Um, so, you know, the idea of implicated, well, in some ways it does go back to this Hebrew way of knowing that has become so profound, profoundly important to me. That to know means to care, to tease it out a little bit more, to have knowledge of means to have responsibility to, means to have care for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if Genesis talks about Adam and Eve knowing, well, the proverb, you know, uh, proverbs say, a righteous man cares about justice for the poor. 
but the wicked have no such concern. Mm. It's the same Hebrew word yada that's used there. Yeah. You know? And uh, so the idea that somehow, you know, that my knowing could become my doing mm-hmm. is not only deeply written into the Hebrew vision, but incarnate in the New Testament, it becomes the very heart of what Jesus is teaching us. Mm-hmm. The very last words of the Sermon on the Mount, the seminal first words of Jesus are, some of you have heard what I've said today, and you won't put them into practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You'd be like those who build your houses on sand. Mm-hmm. Others, though, of you who have been here today, you know, will hear what I've said and do something about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and you'd be like those who build, build your houses upon rock. Mm. What's the conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Well, I mean, I get why we stop with become born again, mm-hmm. or maybe even verse 16, you know, for God so loved. Mm-hmm. But the conversation actually goes a few verses beyond that, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, who is the teacher of the law, mm-hmm. says to Nicodemus, you know, Nicodemus, the reason you don't understand what I'm saying mm-hmm. is that you don't do the truth. Mm-hmm. That's literally what the, language, what the word is. Mm-hmm. You don't do the truth. Mm-hmm. So there's something about working it out, of trying to see what it, it, it means for me, to see myself implicated in the teaching, in the words, mm. in the ideas. That's critical to who we are. Maybe our, maybe our best-loved parables of Jesus we call the Good Samaritan. Mm. What's the problem? Well, here's a man who's sort of gotten all A's his whole life in law. You know, he's an expert in the law, is how Luke identifies him. Mm. You know? He knows everything about the law. He's memorized everything about the law. He knows everything. He's an expert in the law, after all. Mm-hmm. And he wants to play a, a game with Jesus. You know, universities of the world are full of these games, academic games. Mm-hmm. Of, Where'd you go to school, Jesus? You know, <laughs> what's your degree actually like? Mm-hmm. You know, are you sh- should I be impressed with you or not? Actually, I probably mm-hmm. shouldn't be because I'm not sure you went to, what, what, what your degree is. Mm-hmm. You know? And he says, you know, I won't play that game. I'll tell you a story though. Mm-hmm. You know? And, of course, the story is about these two guys who are a lot like the expert in the law who know but don't see themselves implicated. Uh-huh, right. Um, and finally, strangely, of course, it's the Samaritan who sees this battered man and says, what can I do to help? Mm. And so, you know, the, the very teaching of Jesus is, from the beginning to the end, is, you know, there's something about seeing ourselves as implicated, mm-hmm. as, as, as stories about me mm. and what I do with what I know. Mm-hmm. To go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3, you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, mm-hmm. this epistemological temptation with a moral heart. Mm. You know, but that's at the very core of the very teaching of Jesus. And then, therefore, what it means to be a person who you know, lives by faith and lo- hope and love in the world. Mm. That's good. So, looking at this next sentence, I think it connects. Because um, I'm imagining someone uh, being implicated moving towards the world and uh, realizing that they can't change the world. Um, And so this sentence, probably my favorite chapter in the book is uh, learning uh, to live proximately. It comes from there. It says, whatever our vocation, it always means making peace with the proximate, with something rather than nothing, in marriage and in family, at work and at worship, at home and in the public square, in our cities around the world, that is not a cold-hearted calculus. Rather, it is a choice to live by hope, even when hope is hard. Mm. Those are hard words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's especially for... I don't want to have you read them out loud, Jim. Right. That's too hard for my heart, actually. <laughs> I wrote those words. You wrote those words. Uh, they're, they're beautiful wor- words about uh, very 
hard reality. Yeah, uh, very hard reality. They're the hardest things, actually. Yeah. So um, making peace with the proximate. Yeah. What, what does that mean? What does that look like? I think that I, I know that this is true of me. I think it's true of pe people that I know. That we're tempted to imagine that the world is a world where we get to choose between all or nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I thought she'd be like this. You know, I imagine she would be. You know, well, she's not. You know, and maybe maybe she is. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, why is the only commandment that's underscored in the list of ten about marital fidel fidelity? Mm. You know, about deciding to be faithful to the woman that you chose, the man you chose. Because you know, um, it's a problem, not mm -hmm. from, only from Mount Sinai, but for all the rest of us, you know, thousands of years later, actually. Mm. You know, um, uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's hard to make peace with what is not perfect. Yeah, right. Uh, and that's just true, as I've said here. I did say those, I guess I did write those words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's hard to make peace with that in the push and shove of, of true life, of honest day-by-day -day life. Um, and, uh, um, but I do think that, you know, that unless we do that, we spin out, hmm. uh, which you know, then, of course, is sad for everybody. Because mm -hmm. uh, uh, you might imagine, I mean, why is the final commandment, you should not covet? Because you imagine that if I had a different circumstance, I'd be better off, actually. Mm -hmm. If I could just have that, you know, just have her, you know, just have this, you know, then of course my life would be what I always wanted it to be. Yeah. You know? um, and, uh, and of course, I mean, whatever image you give to that, the grass is greener on the, on the, on the, on the you know, other side of the world, um, mm -hmm. or whatever it's be going to say about that. I mean, what you find inevitably, of course, is that you have to make peace with the proximate again, mm -hmm. <laughs> which mm -hmm. is sort of the strange comeuppance in our, in our hearts as human beings, because we never find a situation which where we think it's all that we wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so what do you do? What, 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 can you make peace with something which is honest and true and real and beautiful and good, knowing that it wasn't all that you wanted it to be? Yeah. Uh, and I said, look at you, Jim Mullins, right now. I'm just thinking, that is the question of my life this morning. Mm. So, I mean... There isn't a day of my life that that is a question I have to answer. And today, waking up this day, it's the question of this day in my life. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting is um, me too and everyone else. <laughs> um, but the recently, there was a box dropped off at my house. It was a box from someone at an old church that I was a part of that had all the files on my wife and I as we were preparing to go mm. overseas. And it had all of the little vision papers that I wrote as a 20-year-old mm. about how we were going to reach 70,000 Turkish people with the gospel mm. and how we were going to provide X amount of jobs and these grandiose visions. Um, and there were, you know, about a dozen of us who ended up going overseas to Turkey and we had these big visions. And looking back on it, 70,000 is not even, uh, I, mean, it, I mean, it was absurd to write at the day. But the, the reality is we could either choose to check out and say, 
this big grandiose vision was a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is that there were dozens of people, pockets of people who we were able to be with and display the gospel to, to serve, to know them mm-hmm. uh, well, um, you know, to have rich, important, life-giving conversations. And um, can, can, we, can we look at that and say, God has done a good thing with that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. our big visions are not the reality of the world but something good has happened. And I don't know, I've been wrestling with that lately as I read these naive vision papers. Um, I mean, naive is a harsh word. I get the word. I mean, not I, I, not I, if you knew me back well, no, in but the I day. Mean, I, I mean, I've spent my life with 20-year-olds, John. Yeah. So in some ways I get that, but I wouldn't say it's a bad word. Yeah. Because you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, 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 it's a moment in life where you're full of possibility. Yeah. You know? In my years of teaching on Capitol Hill, I used to finish every semester with a lecture of saying, we don't want you to leave here as optimists. Hmm. We want you to leave here as hopeful. Because hmm. um, we argued that there were different words, different realities. That optimism inevitably was going to cycle its way down into pessimism and cynicism. Because hmm. it was a lie. Yeah, right. If I'm smart enough, I'm, I work hard enough, you know, it'll change like I want it to change. Hmm. You know, hope was different. It was a, a virtue born of truth, mm. is how we argued. Um, you know, I'm not a pastor like you are, but I give wedding homilies sometimes because I have loved students who went then get married and asked to come in and reflect on, you know, what marriage means, and you know, and then somebody else does the official, you know, marrying business. You know, but you know, probably most of these over time, I have said something like this in these beautifully imagined, always unique, you know, wedding homilies. Mm-hmm. Um, Wanting to honor the glory of the day because it needs to be honored in every way I can possibly find words to try to account for. Um, but to say, you know, would you be willing to make these promises today from your heart of all hearts, the deepest place in you? Uh, if you knew that by the mercies of God, in 25 years you would look back and say to each other, you know, strangely, gracefully, we have found a proximate happiness together, haven't we? Hmm. Or you can require this just about perfect day that today is, mm-hmm. you know, a perfect love and a perfect marriage. Um, if you require that of today, you know, this won't be, have been a very good day in your life. Mm. Um, but if you can somehow make these promises, you know, tethered to the reality of the now but not yet world, mm. um, which is the world we all get to live in, have to live in, um, then maybe in 15, 20, 25 years you can look back and say, you know, it surprises us, hmm. but by the grace of God, we have found honest, true, real happiness together. Proximate, because mm-hmm. it wasn't perfect, but it's honest and true and real. Mm, that's really good. Well, that kind of leads to the last sentence here. We are not great shots across the bow of history. Mm-hmm. Rather, by simple grace, we are hints of hope. Yeah, right. That is a good sentence right there. Yeah. What does it mean to be... To live a life that's seeking to be a hint of hope rather yeah. than a shot across the bow of history. Yeah. Well, the hint of hope is a reference to Walker Percy, the novelist, mm-hmm. um, who I have been deeply schooled by in my life. And in some ways you would think, wonder, well, how could this boy who grew up in the mountain valleys of the West, you know, have anything to do with the guy who grew up in the bayous of Mississippi and Louisiana? Mm. You know, I wasn't part of the, you know, that American history at all. And, you know, 
gracefully, my father and grandfather didn't, didn't commit suicide. Mm. You know, as Walker Percy's dead, you know, you think, well, what do you have in common with him? But you know, when I read him, and I read him and read him and read him, I think you and I are so much alike, actually. And and I'm not sure, you know, I mean, it's a strange thing in, in for me because we're not alike, but yet things he thinks about are things I think about too. And when he was finally, you know move from nobody will read what I, ever, what I wrote, which was true for a long time in his life. Mm-hmm. He wrote and wrote, and nobody wanted to read it. Mm-hmm. Before at age 45, he wrote one last novel, one final hope, and it won the National Book Award for Fiction, mm-hmm. of all things. You know, uh, The moviegoer, he called it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the New York literati, you know, these professional you know, experts about writing, said, we finally have our own Albert Camus. Mm-hmm. You know, this philosopher novelist who takes the human heart and all of its you know, worn downness and frailty seriously. He looks the, the hurt of the world in its eye and he doesn't flinch, mm. you know, which was Camus, of mm-hmm. course. Um, well, Percy responded and said, well, uh, thank you for the award. You know, I long to be read. You know, but when you read me and think that I, I'm somebody who, who just doesn't flinch, he said, you, you, you miss... Um, the hint of hope I always want to be in my writing. Mm. Um, it mm. is a messed up world. Mm. It is a very wounded, broken world. You know, and I write about that. The eyes of my heart are open to the horrors of life, the sadnesses of life, mm-hmm. the sorrows of life. But there's always a hint of hope in my work too. Mm. And and I, you know, I think when I was 21, I probably wouldn't like you, Jim. I probably wouldn't have been content with that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be grand banners of hope across the whole cosmic sky. Mm-hmm. You know? I think, you know, as I've lived longer, I thought, well, you know, if I could offer and live my own life for the sake of a hint of hope, mm. I would be gra- glad for that, actually. Yeah. You know, and it isn't defeatism. It isn't passivism. Um, it isn't sort of saying, well, I stopped dreaming of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. You know, I live my life. My wife and I, in some ways, you know, I loved who she was and loved how she looked. And I loved all the things about, you know, when she was uh, in her 20s. And, but I would say I still love to love my wife. Mm. And, uh, um, but we actually came into <clears throat> a deepened friendship because of a shared vision of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. We both had this dream of a kingdom that w- was all-encompassing, addressing the whole of life, every square inch of the whole of reality mm. was how we came together in- intellectually, which began to grow into a deeper friendship, which grew into our marriage. Mm. Um, so in some ways, that still is what binds us as husband and wife years later. Um, but I think hints of hope is now good. They're good words to me. Mm. Um, they're not, you know, uh, they're not words of, you know, I give up. You know, mm-hmm. you know I'm no longer naive and stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they're, but they're saying, well, I've taken, you know, the world into my heart. I know that it's very broken. Mm. Um, I know that I'm very wounded. Um, but you know, you know, I still live my life longing for the kingdom. Mm. Mm. Amen. Well, those sentences um, have shaped our community. They've shaped me as has your friendship and who you are as a person. And uh, I just thank you for that. We really, I want to kind of express on behalf of our community, uh, thank you for the way that you've influenced us and shaped us. And thanks for being on this podcast. Thanks be to God. And thank you, my dear friend, Jim. All right. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Before we sign off, we wanted to let you know that we would really appreciate any feedback you have for us. 
In particular, it would really help us out if you left a comment and gave a rating on iTunes. It will help us get the word out. A five-star rating would be awesome, but we appreciate honesty. Also, if you are seeking some clarity about your work and calling, we would love to connect with you and help provide some career coaching. You can find out more about the career coaching at faithworkrest.com. Until next time, we pray that God would help you discern your vocation, reimagine every aspect of your occupation, and give you rich, life-giving rhythms of rest. We pray that your work would glorify God and seek the good of your neighbor. See you next week.